It is my opinion that many factions of the evangelical world have, I dare say, I know this is going to sound really bad, but I think they've made evangelism too important. Every sermon is always about evangelism. A person's spiritual maturity is oftentimes completely uh, evaluated by how often they are evangelizing. And in some of the, the worst cases, spending deeper time in theology is considered a waste of time. It's distracting us from the work of, of bringing the gospel to the lost. And really all we need to know is just enough of Jesus to be saved and pass that on. And it's just sort of extracurricular, unnecessary activity to go any deeper. I think that this is an abuse of evangelism that happens in many churches. And the effects of it can be quite harmful. However, while I think human nature has shown it has this ability to abuse evangelism in one way, I think that there are many churches who have a tendency to overcorrect and go too far the other way. I think there are lots of churches who make the equally damaging error of neglecting evangelism, not talking about it, not encouraging each other to do it. These are churches that typically have, yes, a more well-rounded approach to worship and, and even discipleship overall, but they probably don't talk enough or practice enough the good thing of evangelism. And I, if I have to be honest with myself as a leader and the pastor of this church and, and the way that I am trying to lead this church, I think that I tend to navigate towards that error. And then by extension, the church then follows me in that. You know, every church has strengths and weaknesses, and sometimes people will ask me what I think the strengths of our church are, and I have a long list of strengths. But if I, if I had to guess one weakness, and it starts with me, I'm not sure we are as focused or passionate about bringing the gospel to the lost as we could be. I know that I am not, personally speaking. And so that's why I'm thankful for texts like what God has for us today. Texts that remind us of the vital work the church has been given to harvest souls for eternal life through the proclamation of the gospel. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 4? We're going to read verses 31 through 42 together. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. When you're there, I would invite you to stand, which is a symbolic way we show reverence to the reading of God's word. John chapter 4, 31 through 42. Thus saith the Lord. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. 
If you were here last week, you saw that a good portion of John 4, uh, the narrative was primarily focused on Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. Uh, but the woman, after hearing these amazing things from Jesus, she just leaves her vessel there and she runs off to go evangelize, to tell everybody that she's met the Messiah. And right as she's leaving is when the disciples come in and they're kind of confused. Why is Jesus talking with this Samaritan woman? But they get over it and they approach Jesus with the very reason they left in the first place. They went into town to get food. They've been on a long journey. Uh, inevitably, they're all hungry. They're all thirsty. It's lunchtime at high noon. And so they bring Jesus this food. And so naturally now, the focus of the text is shifting from Jesus' interaction with the woman. And now it's shifting to Jesus' interaction with his disciples. And so they bring him this food. But to their surprise, Jesus refuses to eat. He's not eating, which doesn't make sense. He's starving. We're all, they're all starving. And he tells them the reason he's not eating is because he's already eaten. He already has food. And so they're confused. Like, that's the reason we went into the Samaritan village was to get you food. So they said, who brought him food? Who gave this guy food? And like we've seen is the pattern in John. Jesus is trying to speak metaphorically and people are interpreting him literally. Just like Nicodemus with being born again. Just like the woman at the well with being invited to drink of of living water. Here, Jesus is talking about eating food and his disciples are taking him literally. So he quickly reminds them, I'm not speaking literally. I have been eating food, but not literal food. I have been eating the food of doing the work that God has called me to. And what this is now doing for us is introducing us to a very, very important theme that's going to show up again and again in the Gospel of John, which I refer to as the mission of the Son. Let's read it for ourselves again. Look at verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Uh, not long ago, Bryson came into my office and asked me a really, really good question. He asked me, when did Jesus know that he was the Messiah? Like, did, did he have to figure that out? Was it just a natural knowledge he, he always had? Like, at what point was Jesus like, oh, I'm not just a regular kid. I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. And it's a good question. I told him it's such a good question. We don't really have a, a super specific answer to that. What the process was like, we don't know. We know from the Gospel of Luke that he was very aware of his Messiahship from a very young age. But it, it, is, it is a really fascinating question. Like, what was Jesus' relationship to his own nature, his own calling, like as a kid? That part's a mystery, but what is not a mystery is by the time Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he is very much aware of who he is. And, and what we learn here is that he is even aware of an eternal calling. He is aware that he came to earth because God sent him to earth. He was sent from heaven to accomplish a very specific mission, one that the Father has laid out for him. And so Jesus metaphorically describes his mission, the Father's mission for the Son, as the food that he is eating. And he, he, he wants to emphasize this idea that fulfilling God's will is so important. Doing what God has called us to do is so important. And the way he emphasizes that is by not only metaphorically saying, I've, I've already got food, but by literally abstaining from the food they brought him. He's trying to emphasize the importance of what he's saying because as we've already, as you can imagine, Jesus was certainly hungry. He certainly wanted food. So why does he refuse to eat then? 
And that is because Jesus wants them to see that there, there are some things in life more important than eating. There are some things in life that are more important than even the basic necessities that we need to survive. My hunger is not the most important thing to me right now. Jesus is telling them, I know that we have been brought to, to Sakaar by divine appointment. God providentially brought me here for a purpose and for a reason, and it's not to eat, and I'm not going to let the food get in the way of the mission that I have been sent to accomplish here in Sakaar. He has not been sent to this little town to eat food, but to save souls. And he knows that. And he wants the disciples to get on board with this. He wants the disciples to see things the way that he has seen them. And so that's why he shifts to another food metaphor to help them get with the program, to view this town the way he views it. And so apparently, Jesus gives us a little insight into some of the things that the disciples talk about whenever they're on these long journeys together. And apparently, the disciples, the Jewish, was a very agricultural community. Everyone was a farmer to some degree or another. And so, naturally, they're thinking about harvest. Harvest is only a few months away, four months until harvest. And apparently, they'd been talking about harvest a lot. So Jesus uses that as a metaphor. He says, you guys have been talking about how harvest is four months away. Open your eyes. Harvest is ready. It's right here. It's right now. The fruit is ripe for the picking right now. He's trying to get them to look at Sakar with spiritual eyes. The harvest is ready. Someone has already sowed. The seeds have already been planted. The seeds have already been sowed. It's now our job to go in and reap the fruit. But it raises an interesting question. Who sowed? Who sowed the seeds? Jesus is making a bold claim here. He's saying these people are ready for salvation. They're ready to be picked. They're ready to be plucked. And we didn't do that job. We're doing the, the harvesting part. Someone else did the sowing part. And I'm calling you to enter into that labor. I want you to go and finish the work that someone else started. Who started it? Some people suggest it's a reference to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing fairly close to this region. Uh, I think the most likely answer is that Jesus is referring to the Old Testament scriptures that they possessed. The patriarchs, the prophets of the Old Testament, they had a limited amount, but they had enough to be prepared for the Messiah. We saw that last week. They're all waiting for the Messiah to come. It was the prophetic writings, the prophets, who were the evangelists. It was through the scriptures that the work of planting seeds in these people's souls was done. And so Jesus is trying to tell his disciples that these people who have learned from Yesa Limited, but nonetheless they learned from the Old Testament and they are ready to receive me. And by the way, John makes sure to vindicate Jesus' testimony. That's what verses 39 through 42 are. Was Jesus right? Did he misassess the situation? Well, look at verse 39 through 42 with me again. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you, do you see, John is emphasizing, do you see the eagerness of these people to get saved? Do you see the eagerness they have to accept Christ? It's, it's almost as if they've been waiting for this for a long time. 
They accept the woman's testimony and then to an even greater degree of certainty and faith they accept Jesus' own words. And so what, what 39 and 42 is functioning is it is vindicating Jesus' spiritual insight. It's vindicating Jesus knew what he was talking about. These people are ready for salvation. And so if you were to ask me like what this text is about, we could say broadly speaking, it's about doing the will of God. Right? That's certainly a theme in this text. Jesus saying, I'm not here to eat. I'm here to do the mission that God has given me, and that's to save souls. And so we could talk about how important it is for us to obey God's will. But I think this text has, has argued from the general to the specific. Jesus has a, a large call from God. But this text isn't just talking about obeying God's will in general, though that's a good thing. But it talks specifically about his evangelism ministry. That he and his disciples, and I would argue extension, his church, have been called to evangelize. To plant seeds and to reap spiritual harvest. I think the reason this text is in scripture is not just to tell the story. But this text is in scripture to call us to join in the work of the apostles and Christ and the rest of the church in reaping a harvest. You could almost think of this as sort of like a a pretext to the Great Commission. Jesus is trying to get this in the DNA of the disciples so that when he finally sends them out officially to win the world, it will make more sense. This text is a call for us to evangelize. And I think most of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, would say that that's kind of an uncomfortable message. It's, It's uncomfortable to be told you need to evangelize, right? And why? Well, because evangelism is difficult, intimidating work. I don't know if Jesus intended for his metaphor to be extended this far, but I I do think that his metaphor is fitting for more than one reason. This comparing evangelism to harvest, to farming, I, I think it's really appropriate, the agricultural metaphor, because like farming, evangelism is not easy work. Have you ever met a lazy farmer? There's only one kind of lazy farmer, an unemployed farmer. Farming is difficult work, sun up to sun down, constant work, laborious. And evangelism is the same way. It requires an incredible amount of sacrifice of your time. Sometimes it requires sacrifices of your resources. And depending on the circumstances, it can actually be quite dangerous. But at bare minimum, it's potentially humiliating. It can be emotionally and spiritually draining. Evangelism is not comfortable or easy work. Additionally, another thing that makes evangelism hard to deal with is because it's urgent work. Right? This was another reason that Jesus refused to eat his disciples' food. He was trying to teach them a lesson by abstaining from his food. He wanted them to see, we don't have time to waste. Sure, I could eat, I could eat, take a break, and then we'll go into Sakar. But he wanted to, to establish the urgency of the situation. I don't have time for lunch. There are souls that need to be saved. Now, I think that this is also similar to agricultural life. Now, I'm not speaking from experience. I'm not a farmer. Uh, but I did live in a very agricultural community before I moved here for about 10 years. And one thing I remember is that the busiest time of the year for our agricultural community was harvest. Harvest is a busy, busy time. It was difficult for the farmers to even make it to church during harvest season. 
They were just so busy. The roads were filled with tractors all the time. Harvest was a busy season. And, and one time I heard someone explain to me is that because when the crops are ready to be picked, I'm, I'm sure maybe this depends on the kind of crop, but what he was talking about at least, there really was no time to wait. If you didn't pick it in time, you'd ruin them. It had to be. It was urgent work. We've got to get the job done now, quickly, and efficiently. It was urgent. And urgency automatically brings a level of stress and anxiety to a situation. Right? Whenever you feel like, I don't have time, I'm not going to be able to finish this, it's got to get done, that's stressful. That's, that, that causes anxiety. And evangelism carries with it that kind of stress and anxiety. Why? Because we have no idea if the person we're talking to has tomorrow promised to them. None of us in this room have tomorrow promised. We don't have today promised. And on top of that, on, a, on a, an even broader level, we don't know when Christ is going to return. Evangelism is difficult, urgent work. And this is why it can be difficult to hear a sermon on evangelism. Most of us struggle to ever get the job done. It's convicting, it's overwhelming. And so that's why I don't want to just leave us with a call to evangelize because I think the, the text does something really helpful for us. It, while I do think that the impetus of the text is, is calling us to join in the mission of Christ to save souls and to harvest and to reap spiritual souls, but I think the text goes beyond that and it actually gives us some comforts and some encouragements to make this a little less scary, to make this easier. What I, I'm going to call them evangelism consolations. To console you in the difficult call of evangelism. And I think the text gives us four different evangelism consolations. And so I hope these four things will help encourage us to not be quite as intimidated or overwhelmed by evangelism. And the first evangelism consolation, the first consolation we're given is this. Evangelism can be contextualized. Evangelism can be contextualized. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this one. I think it's really important. Jesus is showing us in this text yet again that he is the master of turning the mundane into something spiritual, something magnificent. Yes, Jesus was obviously a very good public preacher. Jesus had no problem preaching in the synagogues, preaching on the streets, preaching on the mounts. Uh, but, but what we're seeing in John so far is that Jesus did not limit his evangelism to these big public outreach events. But he was capable of just transforming his everyday rhythm of life, mundane circumstances, into an opportunity to have a natural, organic conversation about himself. And that's what I mean when I talk about contextualizing evangelism. Just finding opportunities in our everyday rhythms, in our everyday life, to bring Jesus into our conversations. In other words, Jesus sees gospel opportunities in his everyday life. And this is exactly this practice. This is what he's trying to get his disciples to, to see. He's trying to get them on board. Look at verse 35 with me. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. I love that verse. Jesus is telling the disciples to put on spiritual glasses, so to speak. 
right? The disciples so far up to this point have been so focused on the earthly mundane things and they're important. They're not bad things. We, we need to take care of these things, right? But they're, they're just, they're, they're so tunnel visioned thinking about harvest and oh, what are we going to do and we got to do this and I got to go home and oh, now we're hungry and it's noon. We better go get some food. They're so tunnel visioned, lost in sort of the routines and the necessities of their life that they're not able to take a step back and view things spiritually and see that Maybe there's a greater purpose for why God brought us to this well. Jesus is trying to get them to, to look with, with spiritual eyes, to not be so distracted by their routines and, and by their, their checklists that they miss out on opportunities God has given them to share the gospel. And I would submit that the same goes for us. This is not just for the disciples. I'd be willing to bet that you have had far more opportunities in your life to naturally, organically bring Jesus up with somebody than you care to realize. It happens to us all the time, but we just don't see it. We don't have eyes to see. And if we did, it would make us more consistent evangelists. I want to share... Uh, an experience I had recently, just to drive this point home. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had some nerve-wracking chest pains and some heart pains, and I was trying to just ignore it. And then finally, I was subbing one day, and it was, it was really bad, and it scared me. So I said, okay, I'm just going to get this checked out. So I went to urgent care and just asked them to, to help me. And you know how, if you've ever been to really any doctor's office, um, but especially urgent care, you're going to wait, right? You're going to have to wait. So I made sure to bring some reading material because I figured I'm going to be in there for a long time. And currently, I'm reading through Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, which is sort of his, the big thing he wrote. And so it's a big book of well over a thousand pages, right? And so I'm in the doctor's office reading Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And my doctor comes in sooner than I'm expecting. And he says hello. And then one of the first things he asks me is, what are you reading? And the strangest thing happened to me. And by strange, I mean sinful and prideful. I wasn't afraid of the gospel. I wasn't afraid of of evangelism, I was afraid of looking arrogant. Like I've got this big fancy book with a, a hard to pronounce title. It's over a thousand pages. And I don't want to be like that arrogant guy like, yeah, my, my reading's not so light as you can see. You know, I, I, I just, that's, I felt like that's what would happen if I tried to explain to him the book that I was reading. And I don't want to look arrogant. I don't want to look like a, like a smarty pants know-it-all. So I just, I just tried to move on. I was like, uh, I said, I'm a pastor. Just kind of a big fancy theological book you wouldn't be that interested in. He said, okay. And then, you know, we went through our doctor's appointment. He, you know, told me some, some good news and wrote me some prescriptions. And, and then he's about to leave out the door. And he goes, by the way, you never really told me what you were reading. And the feeling came over me again, and I just said, it's, it's just a, a, an author I like named John Calvin. I like him a lot. He said, okay, and he left. And then I went home, and I was just suddenly under the most embarrassing conviction. Here was a man begging me to share the gospel with him. Begging me. He came back for round two. Can you imagine going to harvest and, and, the, and the, the fruits are literally saying, will you please pick me? That's the situation I was in, but my pride got in the way. I was so concerned about my heart and I was so concerned about the weight and all the tests I'm going to have to do and this is going to be so expensive. I'm, I, I don't want to talk about theology right now. I've got problems. I let my everyday life and my pride get in the way of someone. I'm literally reading a book about Jesus. And he asked me, what are you reading about? And I dismissed it. Nothing. 
It's not nothing. That's what I'm talking about. Evangelism doesn't necessarily have to be on a street corner. God is giving us opportunities every day, but we just don't have eyes to see. We're too busy. We're too distracted. But evangelism can be contextualized. And, and the reason I think this is so important is twofold. First, because contextualizing evangelism, meaning not limiting yourself to some like big public outreach event, it will help us to evangelize more frequently and more wisely. It helps us to evangelize more frequently because we're no longer paralyzed by the fear of being pressured into methods that God has maybe not equipped you for. I think one of the reasons why so many people don't want to evangelize is because when I say that, when I say evangelize the lost, what comes into your mind? What does that even look like? And I think for most people that usually two different images come up. That means I've got to go stand on a street corner with a sign and a megaphone and I need to preach. But God didn't call me to be a preacher, an apologist. That's scary work. I don't want to do that. Or maybe you think of door-to-door -door ministry. I've, I've got to go knock on doors and ask everyone if they want to hear about Jesus. And just God hasn't equipped. I don't want to do that. That's uncomfortable. That's scary. God hasn't equipped me to do that. And if that's what you think of, of evangelism and you don't feel called or equipped to do that, then you're not going to do it. You're never going to evangelize. Now, I'm not against those things. Those, those things are great. I am for street preaching. If, if I've done it, if you're equipped to do it, let's go do it together. I'll do it with you. I'm a little bit more intimidated by door-to-door -door ministry, but if you want to do it, I'll suck it up and we'll do it. Those are, those are good ways for people to hear the gospel, and we are pro those methods here. We're for them. But I don't want you to think that that's the only way to preach the gospel. The only way to be an evangelist is to be a street preacher. That's not true. As a matter of fact, I would say the opposite. I think you have to be specially gifted by God for ministry like that. And so what contextualizing evangelism does for you is it opens up more opportunities for you to preach the gospel other than just some big church outreach event and street preaching. You can be an evangelist in your everyday life if we just practice this ability to see things more spiritually and to, to walk through doors that God has opened up. I want to give you a positive story of this. Becky shared a story with us last week and she talked to me more about it. She went to go visit her family out on the east side of the country and she was praying not just for safe travels but above all she was praying like help me have gospel conversations with my family and she had a, a grandchild, correct Becky? Two, two, two granddaughters and one of them she, she knows is really into comic books with a more technical name is graphic novels. And so Becky did something really smart. They make a Bible that's a graphic novel. It's like a, it's a Bible with Bible stories, but it looks like a comic book. She bought it for her. And so it was sitting on the table, and so she started reading because she's interested. Next thing Becky knows, her granddaughter's asking her questions about the Ten Commandments. They're talking about idolatry. They're talking about the Lord. They're talking about Scripture. She didn't have to go on a street corner to do this. The Lord opened up her eyes to, here's a way just through my everyday life and my everyday interactions, I can try to work Jesus and work the gospel into this conversation with people that I love. She was able to have gospel conversations with her family, not because she went door to door and stood with a megaphone, but because the Lord just gave her spiritual eyes to get something in her granddaughter's hands that would be of interest to her that would lead them into spiritual conversations. I think that's just a good example of what I'm talking about with contextualized evangelism. You can make it a part of your everyday life. It just, we need help to not, to see the mundane with spiritual eyes. And so I'm going to ask all of us to spend time this week specifically praying that the Spirit would open our eyes and make us more aware 
of opportunities that God is giving us to share the gospel with our neighbors. And I think if we're able to hone this discipline in, we will share the gospel far more frequently. But I also think it's going to help us share the gospel wisely. Uh, Jesus told his disciples that evangelism requires tact. I'm going to give you what I mean by that. Jesus tells them, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is an amazing thing. This is one of the few times, to my knowledge there's only two, this is one of the few times in scripture where the serpent is used positively and not negatively. Normally the serpent represents Satan, cunning, wickedness, scheming. But here, Jesus is saying those qualities of the serpent, you need them in evangelism. You need to be like the serpent if you're going to be a wise, effective evangelist. Now, he's obviously not talking about the negative connotations of a serpent. He's not talking about sinfulness and evil and wickedness because he told us to be innocent as doves. So you, evangelism, there's never an excuse to sin. There's never an excuse to be impure. So, so what then, what do we have in the serpent once we take away all of the non-innocent stuff? And what you're left with is cleverness, craftiness, cunning. I would even say, I would even be willing to call it a righteous deception. Sometimes evangelism takes tactfulness. It takes uh, preparedness, planning. You can, you can play the long game, so to speak. And contextualizing evangelism helps us see it this way. Let, let me give you a hypothetical example. It'd be really easy. Uh, we've got a lot of teachers in our church. All right, so we've got all these teachers say, you know what, yesterday my pastor told me to preach the gospel and doggone it, I'm going to do it. So I'm going to go show up tomorrow, Monday morning and curriculum be darned. No more curriculum, no more school. These kids are going to hear the gospel every period for the rest of the year and for the rest of my life. I'm just going to share Jesus in my classroom from now on. Is that wise evangelism? Certainly God couldn't use it. I'm not saying that wouldn't save anyone. God could use that gospel calling, but I'm not sure if getting fired... And losing your platform, losing your opportunity is, is the best way to go about this. Sometimes when we hear a call to go evangelize, we get these over-pious, like, okay, I just need to, to throw everything out. Nothing else matters but evangelism. I'm going to risk everything and sacrifice everything for evangelism. And my call to you is, does that sound like evangelizing like a snake? Because you're supposed to evangelize like a snake. It's okay, it's okay to, to be wise about it, to be tactful, to be subtle. And I think contextualizing evangelism helps us to do that. It, it reminds us that sometimes we can have subtleties and ulterior motives in evangelism. We don't have to just take a megaphone in someone's face and tell them to repent and believe, though there's nothing wrong with that. So I, I know I spent a lot of time on that one, but I think just practically speaking, it's really important. Jesus shows us that we can look at the mundane with spiritual eyes and, and see more opportunities to bring the gospel up with our friends and our neighbors and our families than maybe we have been before. So if you're afraid of going on the street corners and knocking door to door, I say that's okay. It's okay to be afraid of those things. There are other ways to share the gospel. You can do it in your own context. Let Jesus be your guide. Evangelism can be contextualized. Another thing that I think will, might bring you some comfort, that this text reminds us that evangelism is never done alone. Evangelism is not a solo project. Right? It, it, aren't hard things always made a little bit easier when you've got your brothers and sisters fighting alongside of you? 
Aren't difficult, scary things made a little bit easier when you know that you're in good hands? That the people in control of the situation know what they're doing? Right? Team sports always bring a little bit more comfort than the solo sports because you can mess up a little bit and things might still go well because you're not doing this alone. And Jesus reminds us that evangelism is not a solo project by his analogy of the sowers and the reapers. Look at verses 36 through 38 with me. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is, through his analogy, reminding us that there are many people working together in evangelism. Sometimes when you preach the gospel, all you're doing is sowing seeds. You're just planting seeds. So you don't have to panic if it doesn't go well. They got mad at me. They didn't listen. They left. So what? Maybe your job wasn't to be a harvester. Maybe your job was to be a planter. Other people will maybe harvest that later on. No one's salvation is on your shoulders. The weight of the world is not on your shoulders. We are all very, very small parts in this much larger group effort. You, in other words, you are merely one soldier fighting in the midst of a vast and mighty army. The Christian church is working together all around the world, planting seeds, discipling, cultivating, bringing people in. This is the mission of the church, both local and Catholic. You are never evangelizing by yourself. But not only are you evangelizing with the help of the church, whether you realize it or not, the church is always in a group effort, sowing and reaping, working together, entering into each other's labors. But even more important than that, you not only fight with your brothers and sisters side by side, you fight with God on your side. In evangelism, God is sovereignly working in us and through us. Right? Jesus makes this crystal clear in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You're never alone. You're never alone. Christ is with you. I love the way the Apostle Paul makes a similar metaphor to bring all this together, how we're all working together with God behind us. Let's keep your markers here in John. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 3 with me for just a moment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul uses his own very similar metaphor to describe the work of the church in bringing people to discipleship. First Corinthians 3, read verses 5 through 9 with me. First Corinthians 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. 
I love this analogy. Paul brings everything together here. Number one, you are never alone. You are sowing and reaping alongside other sowers and reapers. This is a team effort. But even more comforting than that, none of our works would ever be fruitful if God was not in them. God is with us, working in us, working through us. We are one. We will receive our wages, but God is the one giving growth. So keep this in mind. Evangelism is not a solo act. You are always under God's sovereign care and work, and you are with your brothers and sisters in this work. You're never doing it alone. Number three, though, another consolation is that evangelism is a privilege. It might not feel like it, but evangelism is a privilege. Look at verses, go back in John 4 and look at verse 34 and 35 with me. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The way Jesus weaves these verses together is to imply the disciples are supposed to be continuing his work on earth. Jesus tells them, I'm here to do the work that God gave me. And then he immediately says, lift up your eyes and go do the work. Like, why didn't the disciples say, this is your job, not mine? God gave you this job, not me. Jesus sees that there is a connection between him and his disciples. His work is now our work. We in evangelism are joining in the mission of Christ. And what does that make it? That makes it holy. (laughs) That makes it not an obligation, but a privilege. What a joy it is to enter into Christ's work, to be a co-laborer with Christ, to be used by him to save souls for the day of resurrection. Doesn't that feel good? To be used of God to share in the holy work of Christ. And that good feeling leads us to our final point, which is that evangelism is rewarding. Like a hard day's work, it's difficult in the moment, but you never regret it. It's always rewarding. The joy of seeing unbelievers repent and be baptized is a joy like no other. But even when they do not repent, there is oftentimes just simply a joy in fighting for souls with your brothers and sisters. I have had few spiritual highs or spiritual mountaintops, whatever you want to call them. Some of my most intimate, amazing moments of God have come right after sharing the gospel with the lost. There is a great joy and reward in sharing the gospel. We see this in verse 36. Look at what Jesus says. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. There is joy at the end of sharing the good news of Christ with someone who needs to hear it. So in conclusion, preach the gospel. Share the good news of Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection with your family with your friends and with your neighbors. Do so tactfully, but do so boldly, knowing that you are not alone, that God is sovereign, and that whether you're on a street corner, chattering with a coworker, or at the dinner table with your neighbors, it is a sacred privilege to share the gospel of Jesus, a privilege that will one day bring us all much joy. 